This podcast is shareable. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this either is or will become your favorite podcast. This is Shareable, the show that's so good, you got to tell someone about it. Every episode, we explore the impact of people and technology on our lives and careers, and we send you away with something shareable. Now, without further ado, let's get to it. Today on Shareable, I speak with my brother from another mother, Dan Pontifrac. See, Dan is writing a book on leadership, but not just leadership. He's writing a book on love-based leadership. So as many of you know, I'm writing a book on leadership called Lovable Leader. So obviously, he and I had a lot to talk about. We went through a lot of the different stuff that Dan has worked on in his career, uh, all really, really interesting stuff uh, from building a flat organization to uh, building an organization where you're leading with purpose. Uh, And through all sorts of experiences that he's had in his career that helped to shape his leadership philosophy is based on bringing love back into the workforce, uh, operating with compassion and empathy. It's a really great episode. I think we covered a lot of ground. I think we really challenged each other and picked each other's brains to really explore this topic of leadership and how to bring love and compassion into it without being stepped on, without being taken advantage of. Um, and how to enforce accountability and, and, and really make sure that you're leading people um, in a way that's effective and, and communicates the, uh, the gravity of situations without being a jerk. And uh, I think we did a good job with that today. Hopefully you'll feel the same. Hopefully you'll feel this episode was worthy of telling others about, which would, I guess, make it shareable. Welcome back to Shareable. My name is Jeff Gibbard and I am your host today and I am here with a very special guest from the West Coast who kindly got up nice and early. It's early for me where you are. Um, (laughs) Thanks for joining me, Dan. Welcome to the show. I am delighted to be here and uh, let's rock and roll. What are we going to talk about first? We're going to talk about so many things. The first thing we're going to talk about is me trying to say your last name appropriately. It's Pontefract, correct? It's pretty good. It's not Smith or Jones. So it's... uh, Can I do it right? Am I good? Slightly, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, so here's the deal with the name. So Pontifrac, and Pontifrac. the reason it's Pontifrac is my dad told me to say it that way, two British parents. But uh, the Ponti is Latin for bridge. And fract, F-R-A-C-T, is actually Latin for broken or to break. So I am trying to be the antithesis of my last name. I'm trying to build bridges, not break them. I dig it, man. That's very cool. My last name is Gibbard because that's how my dad told me to say it. But it, a lot of people say Gibbard. Yeah. And, uh, I really feel like that's probably the correct way to say my name. But I'm just going to keep <laughs> up with Gibbard, man. And, uh, you know, since I'm a big fan of Twitter, I'm like, man, it was meant to be bird, Twitter. <laughs> bird. I don't know. I'm making it up right now. But I, uh, uh, I married a French babe and uh, from Canada, and she would say Gabard for sure. I'll oh, tell you that. Right on. Right on. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's start here. Let's start with the, the, the great big question is, who are you? What do you do? What's your thing? Like, tell us, because if people went and they looked you up, they would actually see that you have a, a, a series of connected different ideas and topics that you work on, but uh, it's kind of morphed a little bit. So talk to us a little bit about who you are today and, and how it all came to pass. Well, I guess I cheekily call myself the human whisperer. <laughs> um, and the, and it, I say that in a cheeky way because 
I guess I'm an empath, which means I'm always looking out for the little guy or the leader who needs to do better or the organization that could probably do a little better. So I'm always, I'm never really looking at me. I'm always looking out there at, hey, how might, how might that work better? How might you do this better? Not that I'm better, but I'm sort of a collector of, of the good and the bad out there and saying, hey, maybe this might work for you. Again, whether you're an individual, a leader even, or an organization. And it, it stems from the fact that I suppose I wanted to be a doctor when I was growing up. And I was, you know, arguably relatively smart and got into McGill and, and then realized that I really couldn't stand the sight of blood. Um, but what I, what I really figured out as a kid and going into, you know, McGill in Montreal was I really wanted to help people. That was where the doctor part came in. And, and then when, when I sort of put two and two together of, well, you can, you can, I mean, it's a noble profession. Anything in the healthcare profession is noble. And you're trying to get someone back to 100% or as close to 100% as possible. I looked at it then without, you know, loving blood. I looked at it and said, maybe, maybe I should be in the education space so that I can help people be a better uh, academic or cognitive or social or interpersonal uh, better of themselves. So I got into education. And at first, I got into teaching high school. So I did that for two years. And recognized that that was lovely and fun, that perhaps I was suited better to adults at the end of the day. And so I made a career change, uh, did another degree, and, and got into higher ed. So I taught at an institute of technology and ran, in, in essence, an entirely uh, new division. And I was just still young, right? I'm like 25. And then I said to myself, well, if you're going to be a really good academic and help even more people, maybe you should go see what the real world is about and go into corporate. And so I went into the corporate world in 2002. And between 2002 and 2018, between two big companies, in essence, SAP and TELUS, one in high tech, one in telecommunications, I was a chief learning officer uh, and eventually what we call a chief envisioner. And essentially, those roles allowed me to really help the organization and myself through the journey of learning um, figure out what makes people and leaders and teams and organizations click. And what I mean by that is, what are those values, those attributes, those behaviors, the technologies, the interactions, the disciplines, and so forth that, that allow the organization and its people and the community in which it serves to thrive. And I had a whale of a time. And through that experience, then I just started, you know, writing about it and speaking about it. And so I started to weave my own quilt, where a first book was about organizational culture. A second book was about purpose, purpose of self, purpose of role, purpose of the org. And then a book came out last year that was about thinking. Why are we so busy? Why are we so frenetic? How does that affect our thinking? How does that affect purpose? How does that affect culture? And then I had an epiphany this past holiday season, uh, hanging out on a beach in Maui with our affectionately called goats, the three kids and Denise. And I said, 
you know what we're missing in this world is a little bit of love in the organization. And so I set out to write a book called Love-Based Leadership, which is really those specific attributes about empathy and compassion and kindness and recognition and so forth that allow individuals to be a better leader in the people that they serve. So soliloquy ended. That's kind of my my history from being a doctor to a teacher to an academic to a chief learning officer to a writer, speaker, thinker, and uh, ultimately human whisperer. I love it. And uh, here's where I'm about to drop the kind of surprise twist on you. Sure. Uh, about two years ago, uh, my, my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, and I were driving back from Annapolis. We had just had um, a, uh, we had just had a, a get together with a couple of her friends from college. We all get together. We play video games or I'm sorry, we play board games together and just kind of like all enjoy each other's company. And on the way back, my wife had actually just started a job where for the first time she was accountable for other people. She was accountable for leading people. And I had run my own agency for the last seven years at that point. And, um, you know, I'd had people under me, I'd had to work with clients and just had to deal with all these different situations. And my background prior to that, I had worked in a PR firm and a management consulting firm that specifically focused on, um, you know, uh, performance inside of organizations specifically related to how people interact with one another. So I had a pretty deep um, uh, set of experience to be able to kind of coach her and guide her on. And on this drive back, she asked me a bunch of questions about stuff. And I started coming up with, here's how I would handle that situation. And a lot of these pieces of advice have kind of guided her in her own journey of leadership. And it was on that car ride that I actually had my own epiphany for a book that I call The Lovable Leader. Ah. So you, see, you and I are actually kindred spirits. Um, I think the perspective that you and I are approaching our books from is, um, I, I would say that it's not parallel and it's not... Um, uh, they're not like opposing. It's not, uh, what's the other one? The one where they're not parallel, where they're crossing, whatever that is. But, but it's sort of like they're, they're kind of going towards the same place, but from different, uh, from different angles. So uh, it was one of the reasons why prior to jumping on the, uh, the podcast with you, I was so excited for us to be able to talk about this. I definitely want to unpack leadership with you uh, a little bit in this podcast. But before we get there, I actually kind of want to draw the line through your career right now and, and ask you a few questions about that. Because you pointed it out that, you know, I, I'm, it's interesting to know that you wanted to be a doctor. That was an, an early idea and that the pivot came to becoming an educator and how you came to kind of have these different books. Because I, I see the books that you have here and they're all books that I would myself aspire to write something about. I love this idea uh, in the Flat Army that the tagline is creating a connected and engaged organization. It's such a fascinating idea. And it's easy to see why that could be the basis of what now is you writing a book on leadership. The same thing, the purpose effect. We all know how important it is when you come to work to have a sense of purpose and meaning and why you do what you do. So there's a, there's a connection there. And then when you move into open to think, obviously, if you've been in business, you, you come to this point where you're like, why are we always running around so crazy and losing our minds? So it makes sense that you've written this and now into leadership. So there's this beautiful through line here. And at the opening of the podcast, you, you called yourself an, an empath. So um, it, it got me to think, is the reason that you are so set on helping people a function of that empathy for others and the desire to make the world a better place to make work a better place to be? Is it because of that just sort of a natural tendency in you? Or was there some sort of an influence that maybe uh, was the predecessor to that aspect of your personality? Um, where maybe you had a terrible boss, or maybe you had an amazing boss, or maybe it's your parents. 
But the fact that you've chosen to start out making it your life's work to really do good in the world and make make the world a better place for others, whether it be through medicine or through education, there's something there. And I'm curious where it came from in you, whether it was just something you were born with or whether it was a, something that was learned. All right. Well, I'm going to uh, lie on the couch and put my head on the pillow, Jeff, and you play psychiatrist, psychologist, and I'll play patient. <laughs> Um, I think we're all creatures, creatures of two things. One, our DNA, and second, our learned upbringing. And so some things are learned and some things come in your genes. Uh, we won't get into the genes part. We'll, we'll talk about the things that I did learn and that affected me uh, in a visceral way. Uh, in no particular order, I grew up with an alcoholic mother. And so that's not fun. And folks out there who have grown up in those situations will know uh, that you're, you can be affected quite greatly by various um, moments that as a kid, you know, whether you're, you know, in your pre-adolescent, pre-bupescent uh, years or in your teenage years, can really have a profound uh, positive and at times negative effect. Uh, I played pretty competitive soccer to the point of uh, being, I grew up, uh, outside of Toronto and in, in Ontario. And I played on the provincial team. And I also was on the sort of national squad, at least trying out for the national squads. And in one particular time, I was cut from a particular team, the way in which that they did it was appalling. I was 16. And, you know, the lads were, were sort of in an auditorium uh, at this university campus. And there was, you know, 25 of us or so, and 18 made the squad. And they called our names, uh, and you'd come up on stage, and you'd shake the managers and the directors' hands, and you'd get your, you know, pin. And then you'd walk off to another room to get carded for the, for the squad. And on this particular time, when I was 16, uh, the seven of us that did not make the squad, which, spoiler alert, I didn't, were, uh, were left in the audience. And the, the director came up to that mic and said, oh, better luck next time, lads, and, and walked off. And so I'm, I'm gutted and proceeded to go pack my bag in my residency room. And I walked to our cottage, uh, which was a two and a half hour drive away. And my dad picked me up several hours later on the highway. Wow. And I, yeah. And I, I never, ever want anyone to feel that type of abandonment or I never want leaders to act in that dictatorial hierarchical BS way. I think that's absurd. So, you know, you've got a couple of things that, that are there. And then in one of those soccer years, uh, I blew out my knee. And so cartilage had to be scoped and, you know, I spent six months on the sideline, but I also spent six months uh, in a physiotherapy office <laughs> four times a week. And, and, and just listening to these folks uh, who are coming in to the uh, center, as well as the physiotherapist, big open concept physio area it was really cool, actually. But you'd hear of their life stories. To, it was like a psychiatry moment itself. They, they, I mean, they'd be talking about their knees, sure, or whatever, but they were talking about life. And as of, I was 15 at the time, and so, you know, listening to, 
adults who were 90 or kids who were 10 and everything in between about what was wrong, what was right. And, you know, it was just six months of, of, a, of an MBA in social psychology, basically. So things like that. I mean, I guess I'm a listener. I call myself an empath, but as a kid, you know, I'm listening and, and feeling as well what, what's going on in my life directly. And it has that visceral effect on me to the point of, okay, well, again, maybe, maybe I'm ill-suited mentally to be a doctor or a physio, but maybe I'm better suited to help. So if I can help, maybe I can help as an educator. And that's where I recall going into the guidance counselor's office at uh, McGill um, when I said that I didn't, I, I couldn't do this. I didn't want to be a doctor or physio or anything in the healthcare space. And this woman looked at me, she's like, but, but you have like a 94 average, you have to do this. And I was like, no, I don't. And then there's this long pregnant pause, right, Jeff? And then she says, well, well, okay, you, you've gonna, you're going to have to be an engineer. That's the next on the list because, you know, you've got great marks. And I said, no, I am definitely not going to be an engineer. My dad's an engineer. I love my dad, but I'm not going to be an engineer. And I said to her, I said, no, I'm going to be an educator. And she looks at me. She's like, no, you're not. <laughs> They're like, no, I am. I'm, I'm 18. I know what I want to be. I want to go help people. I just don't want to do it in a lab. I want to do it in a classroom or in an organization, et cetera. She's like, we can't let you do that. You're too smart. And I was like, uh, no, it's my tuition. I'm going to do this. She's like, begrudgingly, she's like, fine. You probably never will amount to anything, but here you go. You go be an educator. <laughs> like, I'll show her. So maybe I've been proving all my life that uh, this poor woman, that you can actually you know, make some money doing this, which isn't my motive. It's an outcome of being a good person, I would argue, but that you can actually help people in this benevolent, uh, altruistic, you know, trusting way. That's awesome. I want to I want to talk about what you the the last thing you said there that you can help people in this kind of benevolent and uh, you know very straightforward way of of you know helping people, making them better, being a good listener, being empathetic, being caring, being loving, all of those things. And and on your website under the leadership part, you've got being a love based leader is the first step. Uh, to be able to uh, not see through each other, but to see each other through, which I think is a really great quote. I guess I want to start by having you kind of pontificate, <laughs> see what, uh, I, uh, nice. what I did, uh, on the age-old question posed by uh, Machiavelli of, is it better to be feared or to love, uh, to be loved? I'm sure at some point in the uh, process that you're currently going through of writing this book, that question has been posed to you about this fear-love dynamic in leadership. Uh, and then respect probably comes in there somewhere. What's kind of your take on the value and benefit of bringing a love-based approach to leadership? Love seems to be the uh, four-letter word of the organization, right? We're, we're not allowed to love. And, and, and is there a fear of love or, or, or is there ought to be that that fear of, of not loving. I think it's the latter. And, and I'm, again, let's be clear. I'm not talking about the amorous pieces of the definition of love. No, I mean, when, when you're hanging out with your mates, right? Or your, your, your now wife, like when you say, oh, I love that film. You're not saying 
you want to have sex with the film, that you want to have a relationship with the film, you're saying, I love that film. It was fantastic. If you say, I love my truck, you know, the old, the old Glenn Campbell tune. I love my truck. My father-in-law sings that song all the time. You can have a relationship with a truck, right? Mm -hmm. So why is it that we can't uh, espouse some of those same characteristics inside an organization? Here's the thing, Jeff. I've, I, I find in my work, and I've been now at this 25 years, so I've been listening and being an empath for 25 years, I would argue, although I'm 47, so maybe it's 47, but here's my point. In the organizations, I find too many leaders show up at 8 o'clock, 8.39, whenever they show up, in a different suit than they did when they left the house. And that suit is armor. That suit is Teflon. That suit is reeking of BS. And I don't get it. I honestly don't. I, why is it that we think, whoever we is, that as a leader, we need to be somebody else in the organization, that one of fear or dogmatic um, tendencies. I, I, I don't understand. Now, is it because of stress and pressure and have to meet the numbers if you're a for-profit organization? In part, there's that. Is it because it's do more with less and there's so much to do in the organization? Okay, there's part of that, sure. But does that mean that you need to be an arse? Does that mean that you can't be inclusive and empathic and genuine and kind and so forth? That's what I think happens. I think we, we end up going to work thinking, I, I got, I, if I'm a leader, it says leader on my business card. It says manager. It says director. Well, for God's sakes, I better direct. I better manage. I better dictate how that person ought to do their job that it's nuts to me jeff it really where, is where do you think it comes from uh because you know obviously this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart i you know to me when i write uh when i'm writing my book on leadership and and love in that role it's um I'm often, you know, it's really, it's coming from like my own perspective of what I think makes a good leader and, and everything I learned from bad bosses and creating a great work environment. And to me, I, I don't know if, if you feel the same that I do here, that it, it seems almost obvious to me that you would treat people with dignity and respect, that you would listen to them, that you would try to frame things in a way that considers their feelings and at the same time holds them accountable and creates a sense of ownership. All of these different topics that we can, you know, that have been mentioned in tons of different leadership books, and I'm sure you and I are both touching on in our different ways. But where where does this other thing come from? Because you know, you kind of um, you kind of beat me to the punch when you talked a little bit about the numbers and like having to, you know, meet do more with less and and kind of it are we just motivated by the the greed of things so that it gives us an excuse to not treat others like humans? Because to me, it doesn't even seem like that would be enough for, for, it certainly would be enough for me to overlook my decency and humanity and the way that I interact with people. So in your work, in your experience of this, and, you know, looking through the, the previous three books that you've written, and the, you know, the, the case studies and research and experiences you've had in writing those, where do you think that this is coming from? What's the thing that needs to be uh, dealt with so that we can begin to turn the tide? power doesn't matter if it's a public sector organization 
it doesn't matter if it's not for profit and it doesn't matter if it's for profit. Everything comes back to power. Power of controlling the narrative, power of controlling my title and the power that goes with it, power of my salary and what band I may be moving up to if I gain the vice presidency role in my company or if I gain the associate or assistant deputy minister or state assistant state governor or whatever in the public sector, let's say, power. We can unpack everything around that word. And, and frankly, if you kind of look at not quite the opposite of power, but tangentially look at something that can be divided from power, it's empower. <laughs> what's, what's so bad and what's so hard and what's so difficult about, about leading through empowerment? We talk good games about relinquishing the power by thus empowering people to make decisions, to come up with ideas, uh, to empower them to make mistakes. Yet what do we do each and every time? They make a mistake and we reprimand. They do something on time and we don't recognize. Like that's all about this power tripping. And so for me, it, there's not a day that goes by where whether it's a story in the press or it's an, an anecdote that I've been given on a DM or on Twitter or on an email or in my direct line of work, or someone comes to see me after a keynote and gives me this great story, which I'm being facetious, of course, because it's usually a story about power in their organization and what it is that they've seen or, or what they've done. I honestly believe it's about that. And it's not, it's, it's not like, as I say in Flat Army, Flat Army is actually a bit of irony, right? Flat and Army, how can you have those two words together? Well, because I don't believe an organization ought to be flat in its org chart. It still needs the armada, and that's where the word Army comes from. Armada means flotilla, which is a bunch of boats floating together. What do those boats have? They have a crew and a captain, and there's a line of command. Otherwise, they start running into each other or sailing into one another. So you can be flat behaviorally, but still have, quote, the hierarchical sorry, power, if you will. But you can do it in that benevolent, altruistic, collaborative, communicative, proactive, recognizable way. But when you are just army without the flat, when you're, when you're operating as a leader without purpose and you're there just for greed, ergo a different type of power, or when you're uh, leading without thinking, that is, you're too busy to care, your calendar is chock-a-block full of meetings to ensure that your power is upheld, well, who benefits? Well, the customer or the citizen, in the case of the public sector, certainly does not benefit because you're only looking out for yourself. And then ultimately, the team in the organization is not really going to benefit because they look at you and say, oh, Freak show, always in it for the name on the back, not the crest on the front. That's power. I totally buy this because I, I, I've been having an interesting conversation with a, a friend of mine. Um, it's kind of an ongoing project where we're talking about um, uh, the, the, the impact of power in society and politics and economics in you know, the structuring of society and creating a better world. Is it an issue of economics and class struggle and power? Is it an issue of race? 
and how do all these things intersect? So I 100% believe that. And I think to your point, there's a lot of, once you have the power, there becomes that inclination to protect that power. So it's almost like you go into it, you may go into it with the best intentions, but once you get the power, then it's a question of how do you hold on to it? And then in some cases, there's probably some people that before they even had the role, before they even had that power, they felt like they were better than. And I think one of the kind of to your point about the 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 flatness of an organization, how that impacts when you when you think of it as a mental model, is that you have to be able to see yourself as an equal to, not better than the people that you're working with, so that you can be talking on that kind of same level with them. And I think that that might be something that power kind of naturally seems to prohibit in people, or, or at least it makes it more difficult. Oh, totally. Right. And, and I think that's the crux of the issue is that when the, there's hardly anyone that starts out as either a CEO or quote a leader, right? Like, you know, yeah, you have your startup and maybe you've got those. So let's take that aside. Typically what happens is you enter into an organization and in that organization, you are going to quote, work your way up. You've got to prove your metal. You've got to, um, you know, drive results. You got to show that you can demonstrate some sort of capability behaviorally. And, you know, maybe that's in sales, maybe that's engineering, maybe that's product market, whatever, right? It doesn't matter. So you got to prove your metal. And so, but what you're doing in that same point of trying to prove yourself is you're looking around at saying, how did they get there? <laughs> and ergo, then uh, you get into what I called uh, organizational helplessness. It's sort of based on the work of learned helplessness, which was ultimately a psychology experiment that... Um, uh, that that happened at University of Pennsylvania several years ago, and it's about dogs and when they're not being fed, and then they kind of go to the door, and then the, the door closes and because there's food there, and then they just give up, and then everyone learns that okay, the food's there, but you can't get it. So it's a horrible experiment, but that's what organizational helplessness is. It's it's these young folks who have come up and they're looking and they're looking around like, oh, that's how you have to act in order to become a manager. Oh. Oh, that's how you have to act to then get to the, the director level? That's how you get more pay? Oh. And, and yes, there's great anomalies and there's fantastic examples of organizations that don't act like this, that don't behave like this, and they're the ones that I would rather hang out with and cite and so forth. But as is evident from whether it's Gallup or Aon or Blessing White or a great place to work, every piece of anecdotal or direct engagement feedback employee engagement feedback suggests that our organizations are rife with the power trippers and we create this organizational learned helplessness of that's how you got to act so that's how i'm going to get more pay and and it's self-serving and it just it's perpetual and it's incestuous and that's the problem so let me ask you this because when you look at the difference between a leader who leads with love and empathy and compassion as one archetype, right? And then we look yep. at the kind of power and control, command and control, captain of the ship, hierarchical type leader. It, I feel like we see so many examples of the uh, steamroller type moving up the ladder more quickly through silencing critics and just, or, or whatever it might be, whatever it is, it seems like that tends to be a path uh, that successful people um, kind of fit into that category more so than you see these you know, compassionate, lovable types. 
And I guess um, it leads me to, I guess, two different questions I'm curious your take on. I guess the first is in the model of a compassionate leadership style, how do you stop yourself from being taken advantage of and being walked over um, by, by leading with that sort of a perspective is, I guess, the first thing. And the second thing is, am I just suffering from a, um, I guess, um, a bias in what I've seen and that maybe there are more leaders out there who are compassionate than, than maybe I perceive? Yeah, I mean, I, I hear the argument about, you know, if I'm going to be um, too open, I hear the argument, if I'm going to be too benevolent, too compassionate, that people are going to walk over me as a leader. I don't buy it. I don't buy it for a single second. When an organization and its culture, its ethos, its behaviors, its leaders recognize that the followers, that is the individuals beneath them, are aspiring to be led, to be inspired, to be recognized, to be motivated, to have that um, allowance to create and to ideate and to make decisions and to support the customer, to come up with the ingenuity and idea and innovativeness on something that will help the customer or the service or what have you. I don't buy it for a second that, that they'll be walked over. And, and that's not society. That's not the human condition. Humans want to give. Humans want to uh, be recognized for that giving. Humans want to feel valued and they want to contribute value. So you, if you have a bad egg, they usually stand out. But the other 11, good gosh, like they're making up for the other one that might be standing out. It's, it's not the human condition to walk around with a scarlet letter and say, well, you know what? Um, you've given me this great rope here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take it, and I'm gonna just I'm gonna continue taking more rope. Yes, there are bad eggs, but most of us will say thank you for the rope. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna knock this out of the park for you. I know I'm mixing metaphors here, but bear with me. I'm on a bit of a rant here. I'm following. And 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 so for me, when when that argument gets played back to me, and again, Jeff, I get the question, so I'm not knocking it at all. I just call balderdash. I really do. This is not something that leaders ought to worry about. The frightened leader who thinks that, well, they if I give an inch, they're going to take a mile. Or if you're Canadian, give a centimeter and take a kilometer. Yeah, um, I don't even understand that second part. Metric <laughs> system? God. I wish we had it. <laughs> Levity, man. Levity. Um, <laughs> That that I don't I don't see in the leaders that are able to enact such a such a behavior I I never see it and it's the again it's <laughs> it's sort of like although it gets ripped apart from time to time you've you've got Maslow's hierarchy and 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 at the top is self actualization well I'm talking about workplace actualization the top of that pyramid right is what we ought to be striving for in an analogous way. We ought to be finding ways in which as leaders to say, okay, I'm going to trust them. I'm going to relate to them. I'm going to say hi to them. I'm going to say, fantastic. You got your haircut the weekend. That looks great. I'm going to say, oh my gosh, I can't believe your mom's in the hospital. How's the treatment going, right? You're going to care. Like that's workplace actualization. That's giving the rope. That's giving the inch. That's saying, I trust you and let them go. Because humans don't want to do a bad job, Jeff. They don't. I completely agree with you. 
the question has come up so many times when I kind of stand up for the leadership principles that I believe in. Um, inevitably, when you encourage somebody to handle, I, I give a lot of advice to people and, and I do some coaching with leadership clients. And um, inevitably, a situation will come up where there's a conflict or there's something they need to have a, a difficult discussion with somebody. Yep. And instinct for them is to let that person know how badly they messed up and that they won't stand for it. And here's what I need. And, and, and I feel like it's just an instinct. And then when you provide this alternative viewpoint of here's a different way to handle the situation, it's the, the kind of the natural resistance to it, I found, is that question of like, well, am I letting this person off the hook or am I this or that? And I think there's kind of this interesting middle ground, not even a middle ground, it's just more of a, you can be compassionate and still let people know that you expect certain behaviors or hold them accountable for certain things. I, I think we've drawn a false dichotomy between fear and love, that those are the only two options and that they exist in their whole 100% exclusive form. And there's no, a, there's no nuance to it, right? Like you're either like walking in with like a bat and smashing glasses off the table and telling people how terrible they are. Or like you're walking in and bringing cupcakes to people who messed up the last assignment. There's got to be somewhere in between, I think. So the reason I asked the question is just that it, it has come up virtually every time that I have a conversation with somebody about treating the person that they're upset with, with some additional compassion and having a more powerful conversation that, you know, gives them an inch. You know, is it is it really any different than parenting? I mean, I'm a parent of three kids, so I've been through the block. And today, of all days, is my youngest uh, birthday. And her name is Kate, and she's turning 12. And I'm so excited because I'm going to surprise her at lunch uh, for a daddy-daughter lunch. And where am I going with this? Well, there are still rules in the house. So last night, she went to bed, as she always does, at 8.45. And we're one of those families that are quite weird. Uh, we don't allow technology after 8.30 and they can't have any phones or devices or anything in their rooms. And so, you know, she came downstairs, kissed us goodnight, right? Hello, or whatever, goodnight. And, um, and, then, and then I go up back upstairs at 10.30 to go to bed for my bedtime. And where, where's her phone? Her phone is in the hallway as it should be because those are the quote rules. and. And, and so that's an expectation. As a dad, as a mom, you know, Kate knows that she's not to be having her phone in the room. If she pushed the line and kept the phone in her room, she'd know, A, we'd be disappointed, and B, there might be some sort of stern talk, right? Okay, now, she doesn't know I'm showing up at lunch today. It's her 12th birthday. I've never done this before for her. I've never done it, frankly, with any of the three goats. But there, I know, at 11.50 today, she is going to be smiling ear to ear because I've done something to recognize her 12th birthday, unexpected. And it's just, to me, that's that compassion and it's that love. Like parents, I don't think they ought to be um, operating in an all power, malevolent, uh, dictatorial jerk way all the time because what happens to the kid? They turn off, they check out. They're going to be uh, not a great son or daughter because they like, you know, either they're not trusting their parent or they're like, get out of here. You're an idiot. Like, what type of parent are you? Okay. So now I'm a leader. I've got expectations. We've got our objectives. We've got our goals. We've got our revenue targets. We've got our public sector targets, whatever it is, right? Doesn't matter. 
And, and so, but we have team norms. So we have organizational norms. We have cultural norms. These are the expectations which we're going to interoperate together. And that starts at the top. That starts at the top, just like it does in a household. And so for me, again, the way in which that a leader is going to lead is going to be predicated on how compassionate, open, collaborative, benevolent, you know, cohesive, trusting, uh, you know, line giving that they are, but still under the context of, okay, what's the frame of our house? These are the, the this is how we're going, this is how the, the wind is not going to blow this house down. This is our framework, but we're going to have a little bit of nuances in the rooms, right? We're going to let you decorate your room. We're going to let you decide what to have to dinner, have for dinner every now and then, right? Like you're going to chip in, you're going to do the dishes, right? There's, there's all that. That's, that's the parallel for me. I think it's a really great parallel. I, I think it's a good uh, lens to look at it through. Um, you know, the the uh, natural kind of follow up to that is, you know, the the kind of uh, the point where you're sitting on the line of of interacting with your employees as a parent versus as a peer, and and just you know being able to play in the nuance there of of being able to take the principles of parenthood and the the different lessons you're talking about there about setting expectations and things like that. And then being able to enforce those while still obviously treating them as an adult and a peer and things like that, yeah. which which actually is kind of where I want to pivot to uh, as kind of the the point I want to wrap the the leadership conversation on is um, one of the things that I found very helpful in my career, uh, either when it's dealing with teammates, when it's dealing with clients, even just you know creating my own way of operating, sort of my own operating system, is the construction of frameworks. The idea that you can kind of operate from a set of very simple principles and apply them in a lot of different scenarios. I'm curious if as you're developing this platform of love-based leadership, if you've come up with any kind of um, uh, you know, initial frameworks for things that, that are kind of places where you can, um, you know, uh, lenses from which to operate. So I'll, I'll give you just one example of, of something that I've come up with, and, and I'm curious what some of yours might be. I have a concept that I talk about in leadership called sitting on the same side of the table. And it's a mental model around how the conversation is going to feel with someone. So let's say you have an employee that has not been uh, particularly productive, hasn't handled a lot of their work. The conversation you're going to have with them, if you think about it kind of metaphorically of sitting across the table from them would be like, hey, here are all, you're talking at them, you're saying, here are all the things that you didn't do right, what my expectations are, and you need to improve and blah, blah, blah. Whereas if you're sitting on the same side of the table, you're talking about us. You're saying, hey, here's where we as an organization are trying to go, and here's what my role is in helping you to get where you need to be, and here's the kind of feedback that uh, I'm going to be giving you. How do you like to receive feedback? So you're essentially a partner rather than an adversary is, is kind of the idea. So that's one of the frameworks that I'm currently using when talking with people. I'm curious what are some of the kind of go-to analogies or metaphors or frameworks that you're currently using. Ah, I wish I knew, to be honest. I like your sit on the same side of the table. It, it reminds me of my buddies, Mark and Craig Kilberger, who started uh, Me to We and switching the entire conversation of philanthropy and community giving from it's just about me to we. So anyway, uh, that's what it reminded me of. I, you know what? Um, I am doing something entirely different for this book, uh, which I haven't done for the first three books. And that is, I'm doing this. I'm working out loud. I don't really have a clue yet how this book is going to be shaped, but I'm doing it this way. And I'm being open and honest with myself to say, I don't have the answer. 
And so I'm on a journey and I, I, I know that I'm calling it love-based leadership. I don't know the framework, the archetype, the behaviors, the attributes yet, what really constitute that because quite frankly, discussions like this, Jeff, which I'm very thankful for, um, the, the writing I'm doing out loud about this concept, the kind of uh, YouTube channel that I started. I started my own podcast, but right now I'm just talking into a mic with myself, not having guests and just rambling. And that, that's, that's where I'm going. And so I, let's, let's talk again, maybe in, in late 2019, because I, I might have more to say about what it looks like rather than the, the farce that I'm doing right now, which is saying, I got nothing for you, man. I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> well, well, I'm going to, I'm going to hook you up here and I'm going to, uh, I actually went through a lot of your, uh, stuff that you're doing with the development of this book out loud. Um, and I actually think you have a couple things here. So <laughs> I, I'm going to tell you what I think. Excellent. I love it. <laughs> So still think, on, by the way, I'm still on the couch. So, you know, the pillow is really fluffy and uh, this is a great psychiatry moment. So, so one of the Ten Commandments of lovable leadership in, in my paradigm is be a cheerleader. And I think you and I align on that because you have uh, an episode you did called Giving Recognition. And yep. I really like the, um, the, uh, the three-letter acronym that you came up with it, this DNA, Decide, yep. Knowledge. So I think that's one that you have that's there, which is... Um, you know, and, and it ties in nicely to the being responsive and to the personable and vulnerable. So what you're getting at with these three together, I think, is that you're talking about giving authentic feedback from uh, a place of being on the same plane as the other person. So you're talking to someone as another human being and acknowledging them. So those are sort of three things together. I'm not sure what your overall framework, what you can call that is, but you definitely have a through line here that comes down to how you're communicating with other people. And it sounds to me like you've got the start of something that could become a framework there. That's awesome. I might have to hire you as the structural editor at this point. <laughs> so, uh, and then I'll just, I'll, I'll pick out the second one and, and we can uh, wrap the discussion on this part of it. But uh, I like this intentional disposition uh, mm. because I, I think one of the things that you're doing nicely in all of these things is I think this process is actually, uh, it, I think it's working for you, at least from my perspective, because it looks like you're kind of thinking out loud and you've got a lot of these ideas and then ultimately you're going to wind up with just a lot of stuff that you're going to organize into a structure and then write. But you've got all the pieces here and this intentional um, disposition piece of it is about being thoughtful about how you are. And again, that ties into that personable and vulnerable thing that you've got as well. So I think you're talking a lot about the leader his him or herself in how they're approaching their interactions with other people and uh, i'm really excited to see where you go with the rest of this kind of thinking out loud uh one of the things i'm really excited to see is is the pivot into the um the goal accomplishment side of mm. things because yeah, yeah. i think as we know like leadership is not just like the goals that you set and how are we going to get there it's also the along the way how are you interacting with people and how are you inspiring them, how you build a team from the ground up, how do you keep the team together? There's like so many different elements of it. So I'm really excited to see where that goes, but I, I really think that you're onto something. Um, I'm, I'm glad that kindred spirits uh, such as we uh, had the chance to sit down on this podcast. Um, I want to ask you if I could a couple rapid fire questions that I call the shareables. And it's a place where my guests can recommend things that they think are important. Um, and uh, our listeners can, can really glean some things that they should go and do and things that they should check out. So you cool with that? 
I, uh, I, I can share and I care. Let's go. All right, let's do it. What's one book every person should read? You can't say any of your own books because they're going in the show notes and I think everyone should read them anyway. Uh, Posable Mind, Roger Martin. Okay. What's your favorite podcast? Seth's, Seth Godin's. I love Seth Godin. He's, he's, uh, he's amazing. Uh, okay, what's the one application, mobile or desktop, that everyone should go and download and you cannot say Evernote? <laughs> you just stole the answer. Um, everyone will say Evernote because it's so amazing. <laughs> Why is that company doing so poorly and having difficulty keeping CEOs though? Like if we kept saying that. Did it. It's such a, it's like one of the four apps in my dock and I'll never leave. <laughs> um, I will say LinkedIn. And the reason for LinkedIn is when I may have a spare moment every now and then uh, out there, you know, walking around, uh, it's, Anyway, it, it just allows me to see on the business side, oh gosh, people are connecting and, and saying kind things. So I'll go with LinkedIn. Very cool. All right, this one's going to be another one where I'm going to pose a restriction on you and I'm doing it deliberately because I think I could guess your answer. Uh, what is the most important skill of the future and the one that you cannot say is empathy? <laughs> so compassion is an offshoot of empathy, isn't it, right? It's yeah. kind of, you could say compassion if you want, um, you know. No, but it's, it's a risk. to go a little differently. Uh, maybe think hard skill of the future. Uh, I'm going to say this, Jeff. Um, uh, face to face interaction, and I know that sounds not like a skill, but no. as as people bury themselves behind devices and laptops, etc., the face to face interaction skill is going to be necessary. Completely agree. And for those that are thinking about that and they want to improve on it, I just read a book by digital uh, by Cal Newport called Digital Minimalism, and it'll blow your mind and it'll definitely cause you to delete some apps off your phone. I love deep work, but I found that book even better, to be honest. So I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Time travel, man. <laughs> Get me back to fix some of my mistakes. <laughs> All right. Final question. Here it is. This one is the big one, and uh, there's a very operative word in here that I want you to focus on. What's one thing that everybody listening to this episode should go and do today? So the today is the operative part. It means it needs to be a thing that can be accomplished by the time that they finish this episode and the end of the day. They need to write a one or two line purpose statement, a declaration of their purpose. Why are they here? What do they want to uh, be? And how do they want to be known when they leave a room? If you don't have a North Star, a mission to uh, your own personal self of what you're here for on this planet, your purpose, God knows what, what track you're heading down toward. You really need to guide yourself. I absolutely love that one. And just from me to the audience, I would say, do that. Do that today. Remember, you can always change it later, but having it is a great starting point so you can begin to see if that's actually over time uh, the purpose that you actually want or if you want to make any tweaks to that. But I 100% uh, back that suggestion. So go and do it today, everyone. Dan, you've been a phenomenal guest. Uh, it was a blast to hang out with you. Tell people where they can go and be social with you, where they can learn more about you. They can buy your books. They can uh, watch you work on this book out loud. Tell people everything about you, where they can connect. Well, first of all, Jeff, thank you. This was wonderful discourse. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, sometimes um, 
you know, it's, it's formulaic and it feels like there's a Q and an A and it's, this is actual conversation about the hard stuff, about the really important stuff. And so I want to thank you for the invite, but, but even more, uh, this, this exchange that we've had uh, is one of the best I've had, not only because you're thoroughly prepared, but that you get it. And I hope your listeners appreciate you for what you do, uh, uh, paving a path towards essentially what we both have in common, which is a better way of our world to operate. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate that. To your question, I just probably website, uh, www.danpontifrac.com. Um, that's where you can find most of my stuff. Perfect. We'll put everything in the show notes and uh, on your website. For those that don't know, uh, you have all the links to your different social sites, so you can find it all there. Uh, we'll probably pull a couple of those out. Do you have a preference, Twitter, Instagram, any of those, or should they just go straight to your website? Uh, yeah, sure. Website's fine. I mean, I'm dabbling in Instagram because my kids are there and uh, Twitter has about a gazillion times more followers right now. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, we'll throw your Twitter on there as well in the show notes just in case anybody wants to connect with you there. Um, keep doing what you're doing, man. I love the fact that you're, uh, you are putting yourself out there and you are doing the deep thinking to try and make this a better world and make workplaces a better place to be since we spend so much of our time there. So thank you for the time. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for the work that you do. And, um, if I had to just say that this episode was anything, I guess I would say it's shareable. Wait, the show's not over yet. I have some important announcements. If you made it this far, you're clearly a dedicated fan or you're in the middle of vacuuming and just haven't hit stop on your podcasting app. Whatever the case, we want to thank you. We're not just music to your ears, we're music to your inbox. If you subscribe to our email list at sharablepodcast.com slash subscribe, not only will you get access to our private Facebook group, you'll also get all of our blog posts, newsletters, special announcements, and more. You won't find any of that in your podcast feed. You can follow the show at shareable underscore pod on Twitter and just shareable podcast on everything else. You can find Jeff online at jeffgibber.com and you can connect with me on Twitter at Caroline Stone because I don't have a website yet. So go ahead, call us, leave a message, subscribe to our list, leave a rating, review us on iTunes, tell a friend, tell your mom. If she's like my mom, she'll love it. And now for the thank you portion to all the folks that make this podcast possible, shout out to DJ Quads for the use of our theme song, Always, and Ahimitsu for the use of our outro song, Adventures. And a big thank you to Ray Bueno for all of that sexy production value. 